So I can still remember the picture. Something like this. It was a skeleton of some type. A sperm whale. Humpback whale. Not quite sure. A whale. And I was sitting there. It was uh, my very first university level science course and my professor had put this slide up on and he asked the class and the class was about this size you know what do you notice what do you see in this what do you notice about the skeletal structure and we we're like wow there's a giant head enormous and the fins aren't like fish fins they're more like fingers or something definitely a mammal and sort of knows the size of everything but then but then along the way we noticed well about two-thirds of the way down there's something odd something down at the bottom here like what 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 is that? And the professor was like, what is that indeed? Those are hips for an animal that has no legs. Whale hips. And the professor said, that's right. These are vestigial structures, proof of evolution that, that 40 million years ago, some creature, four-legged creature on the land, moved off the land into the water, and the, and the, the hind legs of that creature, the, the front legs became fins, and the hind legs shrank until, until there was nothing left, but there's this vestige, these useless hip bones that are there still in the whale, giving proof of evolution, and everyone sat there, was like, oh. And I sat there, um, let, me, let me tell you, I grew up conservative Christian church, by the age of 18, I knew all the answers. I knew how old the earth was. I knew how God had destroyed the world in a uh, worldwide flood. I knew how all the animals fit on the ark. Like, I could tell you all of the answers. I knew the answers. And I was sitting there, and I think all the other students were just wondering the question, like, will this be on the test? I had a whole different set of questions. A whole different set of doubts. And that one picture, those whale hips, believe it or not, led into all kinds of other doubts. Like it, it was this creeping doubt that started affecting everything else in my faith. Like if I don't believe this, what do I believe? And what do I believe about this and this and this? And like, have you ever had a sweater where there's like one string hanging out? And you're like, oh, I'll take care of that. So you grab it and you, you just yank. And what happens? The entire sweater. Suddenly there's a run on the whole thing. You've ruined the whole sweater. That, that's what this was. This whale hips. When I pulled on the one thing, it affected everything else in my faith. And it, and it was amplified by the fact that I had a lot of friends. Good friends. Good looking. Athletic. Brilliant people. My own roommate. Who didn't believe anything that I believed. How can I be a Christian when whales have hips? And my super loving, maybe the nicest guy I've ever met roommate, is an atheist. I didn't just need to know why whales have hips. I needed to know, is Christianity real? Is there something here that I can believe in? I need to know, is God real? Or are all my experiences, everything I've been told, is this just a lie? Is this just something I've been, like, is this some fabrication? Have I been lied to? Have I been deceived for all these years? So today we're going to talk about Psalm 73. And Psalm 73 is a song, and the lyrics of which from this ancient Hebrew psalm are just about doubt. What are we supposed to do when the old answers don't seem to work anymore? What do we do when the Bible doesn't feel true? What do we do when following God doesn't work out the way we think it's going to? 
Before we jump into Psalm 73, I want to point out something about this text that we're going to look at today. Um, or I want to point out a couple pitfalls, rather, about, about when we come to the issue of doubt. There's two major pitfalls that we often fall into that I really want to be careful about. And the one is this. is When we talk about doubts in here, there's going to be two extremes. One is I'm just going to encourage you, don't let doubts rule over you. And what do I mean by this? I mean that if you, if you walk out these doors and you go out and you just find someone playing baseball right now, right? Someone out there. And you say, hey, um, do you think Christianity is true or Islam or Buddhism? Or do you think you can know whether people go to heaven or hell? Or do you think, and you start asking those questions, you know what the ever-growing most common answer is going to be, especially among 18 to 29-year-olds, it's going to be, I don't know. And not only do I not know, you can't know. Like, nobody knows the answer to that. Like, I don't know, Christians see some things, and Muslims see some things, and Buddhists see some things, and we all have our different perspectives. But remember, it's all the blind people feeling the elephant. Have you guys heard that? If you're not, look it up. It's the blind people feeling the elephants. We all see different parts of God, and maybe some of it's true, and maybe some of it's not. And maybe all of us see part of it, and maybe no one's right. But I don't know, and you can't know. We call this view agnosticism. It's from the Greek word, the A there means not, and Gnostic means knowledge. It means without knowledge. Like the official thing, the only thing I can be sure of is this. You can't know. And if you say you can know, it's going to cause wars, it's going to cause fighting, it's going to cause all these problems. Don't say you know. Tolerance is the answer. Everyone's opinion to this is equal. And it's all just opinions when it comes to religion. I'm going to encourage you, don't do that. And here's why. If Jesus is God made flesh, if we will be held accountable for how we live in this life, if there is eternity at stake, if heaven and hell hangs on this gospel message like the Bible says, isn't that something you can't just be on the fence about? Isn't it something worth knowing about? Even if you say no at the end of the day, it's better to say no because you've explored it than to go through life and you're saying, oh, I can't know. And at the end, it's the same as saying no. You see, agnosticism, it is tolerant and it is kind and it is soft and it is nice in every way. And it is probably the least violent way of rejecting God's authority. But at the end of the day, it is Rejecting God's authority. So don't let doubts rule over you. The second side is going to be over here. Don't suppress and deny all your doubts. So, so Christians, what happens is the guy comes in off the street and he says, I don't believe any of that stuff. And he comes into the church and says, so tell me, do you actually believe Jonah was swallowed by a whale? And they're like, oh, he doesn't believe. Can you believe that he doesn't believe? Like everyone's like, you don't ask that question in here. That's not okay. We don't ask those questions. And so they say, we don't talk about that. If you're in here, we just say whatever the pastor said is true. Yes, we nod our head. The problem with that is that church culture that does this, it doesn't develop your faith. It doesn't work through the doubts. What it does is it creates a really good culture where we don't ask questions. And at the end of the day, it doesn't develop your faith. It develops fake faith. And fake faith won't change your life. It won't reach our community. And it won't save you. 
So don't give in to the doubts and don't just suppress all of them. What do we want to do? I want to give you a third option, and that's what I think we see in Psalm 73 here. Psalm 73, if you open up your Bible, you're going to notice just above it, if you open a real Bible, that is, just above it, there's a little header. And the header there reads, Book 3. So did you know that this is not the Psalms, it's not the book of Psalms, it's the five books of Psalms. That thousands of years ago, the, the ancient authors, like the, uh, this is actually the rabbis and some editors and some song leaders, they got together and they said, hey, we're going to take all these psalms, these songs, these hymns and prayers of the ancient church, Israelites, and we're going to put those together in a particular order so that when you go, let's turn to book one and, and pray through that. Let's turn to book two. So they were organized by book. They were organized by theme, by structure. Each one has a distinct sound and style and voice and a different purpose in the, in the worship service. Do you get it? So Psalm 1 through 41 is book one. Psalm 42 through Psalm 72 is book two. When we get to Psalm 73, the important thing to notice here is that this is book three. And book three has its own style, sound, voice. So this is, um, in our day, this is changing the channel on the radio. Right? So if you turn it to a classical station, you have one set of expectations. You know what you're going to hear. If you turn it to a country music station, you have one set of expectations, and hopefully they're very low. If you're listening to Katy Perry, you have one set of lyrics you're listening for. And if you're listening to Bach, you're listening to something totally different. Do you get it? So when we turn to book three, the first ten psalms of this book are written by a guy named Asaph. This is his first major CD. And it's all put together there. And it's put together in order for a reason. Remember the old days when they played records and they did it from start to finish? And the whole record meant something? Like it wasn't an individual song, but the whole thing? You know, you think of Pink Floyd, The Wall, right? This is like, this is a rock opera here. This right here, what we're going to get in the first 10 psalms of book three is not a rock opera, but it is a, a CD in their day. It's meant to be heard as one voice, the Psalms of Asaph. And Asaph, you might not know the name, but he was really important. You know, like he was the major worship leader of his day. He started the, the whole choir of the temple. He was the first leader of that. So he's the day, like if you go back and you read through, he was the guy who gathered together the people when they would come in for the feast and tens of thousands of Jews would be there to worship and he would stand up and lead them in worship. All of them singing, this massive concert. It's, in, in this day, it's, it's, um, it's comparable to like a stadium concert, okay? This guy was a rock star. And when you listen through first 10 Psalms here of book three, you hear his voice and it is, majestic and soaring and God is awesome and all of this and but when we come to this Psalm 73 the first track on his hit album it's unlike anything we've ever experienced not only on this CD but in all the Psalms like remember this is the leading worship leader of his day he walks up to the mic hey my name is Asaph and this is a song about how I almost lost my faith. And that's where it starts. Verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Like surely there's no question that God loves his people, that he's good to them, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, I'm not so sure I'm one of them. 
I wasn't so sure that I am loved by God. As for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. So this is an image. This is a classic biblical image throughout not just the Psalms, but Deuteronomy, Joshua, other places. That that following God is like climbing a mountain. It's like this precarious path. And that if you should lose your footing, you would slip and fall to your death. That you would fall away from the faith. So uh, we have uh, friends in the church here. Brad Peterson and Andrew, his son, are now, hey, Karen. Um, they're, they're in one of my favorite places in the world. They're in uh, Interlaken, and I went to a place called Gimmelwald, Switzerland. This is just, this is where you go to do crazy things. You go to do canyoning and skydiving and jumping off cliffs and stuff. So well, uh, years ago, before I was married, and while I was slightly crazy, I... Um, I went there, and we, we hiked this amazing path outside of Gimmelwald, where you go up this mountain, and then you go around the side of a 1,300-foot cliff. And here's a picture of what it looked like. Like, this is it. This is the image that Asaph has. He says, I almost slipped and fell, and if I fell, it would be to my death. It would all be over in that instant. Like, this is it. If you slip, you die. Don't miss this. This is one of the greatest worship leaders of all time. God liked his music so much, he included it in our scriptures. And he is saying before a crowd of thousands of worshipers, I almost lost my faith. The Asaph thinks it's important that worshipers know that worship leaders struggle with this. That God thinks it's important enough that that. In this place, in this place, it's important enough to talk about our doubts that he would have worship leaders and pastors come before the crowd and talk about their doubts. This is how Asaph describes it. It starts in verse 3 through verse 11. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now this is just the tipping point of uh, of his doubts. This is maybe his whale hips, if you would. This is a... This might not be that troubling to us. Like if you see someone who's super wealthy and not a Christian, you probably wouldn't think anything of it, right? I mean, just common in our world. But back then, if you're an ancient Israelite, this is problematic. This is a huge, huge theological, biblical problem. If you go back the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you will find again and again that God promises... That for his children, if you follow me, if, you are, if you're careful to obey my laws, I will bless you. But if you're wicked, if you're unrighteous, if you do not obey my laws, I will curse you. I mean, this is such a vivid image that in the end of Deuteronomy, when the people are getting ready to walk into the promised land, what does he do? There's two mountains, and he puts half the Levites over here and half them over here. And as God's people walk through the valley to go towards the promised land, he has half of them shouting all the blessings over God's people, and half of them shouting all the curses. That if you love me, and if you obey my commands, I will bless you. And if you don't, I will curse you. Do you understand? And that, so Asaph says, I, I, I've heard this. I I believe it. I believe your word. But here's the deal. He then when he walks out, opens up his door, goes out into the big wide world and meets some of these wicked people that God is supposed to curse. And this is what he sees. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from the burdens common to man. They're not plagued by human ills. 
Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous heart comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their mind knows no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven. They think they can own heaven. And their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. Like people still just eat this stuff up. And they say, how can God know? Does the Most High know anything? Let's put this in our terms. Their life is really good. They look better than me. They're cocky for a reason. They're not stressed out. They don't carry around a bunch of guilt and shame. They, they seem to be in control of not only their own lives, but of the whole world. They, they have tens and thousands of followers on Facebook and their blog and Twitter and whatever. And, and they laugh at the idea that God would ever, ever judge them. Like he goes out the front door expecting to see the wicked people crying and sad. And he goes out and what he really sees when he looks at the wicked people is he sees... Sports car pull up and this really attractive couple hop out. And they're svelte and tan. they got a six-pack and expensive sunglasses. And they're like, oh, we just got back from our beach house. And, and let me tell you about how great my life is. Like, he looks at them and he says, they walk into a room. And like, all the iPhones light up like, hashtag, I'm so jealous. Like, they have no worries. And no love handles. And, and no money problems. And, and no fear of God. And they don't worry about church and they don't worry about all the junk that I have to deal with. Like their whole life, it really is about me. It's about me. They're self-centered. They're selfish. And you know what? It works. Being selfish and self-centered, they really get exactly what they want out of life every time. They are blessed. Now this, well, just look what Asaph says. This is what the wicked are like. Here's a summary. Always carefree. They increase in wealth. They are wonderful. This is where that one starts with that problem of he he starts to envy them. But when it actually comes in, this is where it comes into pure, unadulterated doubt. And it's in verse 13 here. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. In vain I have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted. And every morning brings new punishment. It's not so much that they're succeeding that bothers Asaph. It's that they're succeeding when he is trying so hard to be righteous. It's that they're succeeding when he did all the right things. When he did everything God asked him to do. And God's never once blessed him. It's that they get a raise and he loses his job. It's that they're a picture of health and he gets cancer. It's that they have a big family and we are struggling to have kids. It's that they bought a beach house and I can't afford my mortgage. It's that they're happy and I'm struggling with depression. It's that they don't go to church and they don't care about God. And it doesn't seem to matter that I am clearly wasting my time sitting here right now. This is when you take that little thread out of the sweater and you start pulling on it. And you see that that one little envy of the arrogant, of the wicked, starts affecting all the other aspects of his worship. And at that very dark moment, God's going to step in and something's going to happen that's going to change this. Watch this in verse 15. 
If I had said, I will speak thus. If I had come to the worship service and said, let me tell you all, you're just wasting your time. If you want to be healthy and happy and lucky and, and have everything great in life, you don't go to church. If I had said that, I would have betrayed your children. Now, I want you to notice something. Up to this point in the psalm, everything has been about himself or about the wicked. Where have his eyes been focused? It's all about self-pity and woe is me and oh, my life is so hard or their life is so great. But he hasn't once looked beyond himself to the community of believers. And when he finally looks up at the worshipers, I'll tell you, it's one thing to be able to deny God's work in your own life. But when you come here and you're like, I know her story. And I know that God saved that marriage. And I know that God healed her. And I've seen their lives change. Like it's one thing to deny God in your own life. That God's not working in you. That God doesn't love you. That God's not blessing you. But it's something entirely different when you look at your own children. Doubts are much bigger when you're isolated. When Asaph sees all the other believers, his doubts get caught in his throat. Remember, he's a worship leader, and the crowds are coming into worship, and it's one thing to give up your own faith, to doubt yourself, to personally deny God, but it's something entirely different to look at your kids and say, do I really want them to be suntanned and wealthy and healthy and wicked? Is that what I really want? Doubts are much bigger when you're isolated. And then this happens, verse 16. When I tried to understand all of this, when I tried to make sense of the fact that unrighteous people are being blessed by God and I'm suffering, it troubled me deeply. It's literally, it was oppressive to me, is what the old text says. Verse 17, till I entered the sanctuary of God and then I understood their final destiny. And this, this is the turning point. He goes into the sanctuary and something clicks. He enters the presence of God and something changes. Now, I want you to notice what he doesn't say here. He doesn't give us any explanation. He doesn't say, like, I read this book and went, took some seminary courses and looked through all the, the, the ways that this is, I was wrong thinking. He doesn't say any of that. That might be true, but that's not in the text. He says, I experienced something. I felt something. I came into the presence. I saw the other children of God worshiping. I saw how God had changed their lives. I saw how God had blessed them. And when we worshiped together in the presence of God, something changed. Before we unpack this, I just want to make one suggestion. And I I want you to wrestle with this. So maybe you'll disagree with me, maybe not. My suggestion is this. Doubts, in my experience, both sitting across the table from you guys and in my own life, doubts often hide behind a rational framework. People rarely lose their faith over whale hips. But all the time they will fall away over a bad relationship, a bad impression left by Christians, a bad feeling, a bad experience at a church. Are there rational questions that need to be answered? Absolutely. I'm I'm not pushing that aside. When we have doubts, we we need to address those. So is there historical evidence that Jesus actually is God and rose from the dead? We need to answer that. 
Like, is there a reason to believe that the Bible is the words of the apostles and prophets? We need, to, we need to look into that. Is there historical evidence to believe that there was such a place as ancient Israel and that there was a king named David and there was a guy named Moses? Like, we need to look into that. I'm not throwing that out. But what I, 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 I don't want to pass over that. And just a little footnote here. If you have questions, like real questions, like how can you believe this? Come talk to me. Talk to Lucas. If we can't answer you, we'll point you to someone else. I mean, we'll help you find answers. So some of those rational questions, we welcome those. We're good at those. We like those. We even have these little books on the back table there called More Than a Carpenter. If you've never, like, had any starting point, like, how do you deal with rational arguments about the faith? This is just a great starting point right there. So I don't want to set that aside, but what I am going to say is this. Most of our doubts, and probably our biggest doubts, seem to have very, very little to do with rational arguments. Very few people fall away because of a new bit of information. Um, C.S. Lewis, do you guys know C.S. Lewis? He's a lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, but he also wrote a great series of books on Christian apologetics. One's called Mere Christianity. Highly recommend it. And he's got an illustration that has since been discussed and updated by some people, uh, Tim Keller being one of them. And I just want to share this with you. There's, the illustration goes like this. How do doubts come into our mind? How do, we, how do we deal with doubts? So there's this young woman, and um, she's single, and been just looking for the right, the one. And suddenly she meets this guy, and this is the guy of her dreams. Like, this is the guy she's been waiting for her whole life. He is hunky, he is dreamy, he's polite, he's like everything she's wanted. He's funny, you know, all those things. She's like, yes, Finally, this is what I want. And so he comes up, they meet, and he says, you know, would you like to go on a date with me? So they set a date about a week out, and she goes home. She's just so giddy. And then, then the next day, she gets a phone call. And her, she's like, her friend says, so I hear you're going out with a hunky guy. And she's like, yes, it's so exciting. He says, you know he's a pig, right? You, you know what he's going to do. He's going, to, he's going to hang out with you, and he's going to court you and date you and be so sweet and kind and nice. And he's, as soon as you start to fall in love with him, as soon as he gets the sense that you're in love with him, he's going to lose interest, and he's going to drop you like a bad habit. And she's like, oh, I'll be careful. Hangs up the phone. Next day, she gets another phone call. Ring. New friend. I hear you're going out with so-and-so. Yeah, that's right. You know he's a pig. And then another friend, and another friend, and another friend. Soon, 20 friends, trusted friends, all call her up and say, this guy's a pig, you got to be careful. Like, he has this habit of, of pursuing girls until they get interested, and then he drops them like a bad habit. He's done it again and again. you got to be careful with this guy. So the fact is this. 20 trusted friends say he's a pig. That's the fact. And she believes that until the day. He picks her up, and he is more hunky than she remembered. He does this. I mean, it is so nice, and, and it's so sweet, and he's so smooth, and he remembers her favorite things, and he puts his hand on the back of her, uh, the small of her back, and he opens the door for her, and she swoons and swoons, and the food was perfect, and the, everything was perfect, and they danced all by themselves on the roof, and then she goes home, and she's so glad that all of her friends were wrong. Why does she now start to doubt her 20 
trusted friends. The fact is that 20 trusted friends said he's a pig, but the feeling says he's wonderful. The message of the friends is on audio. The message of the hunk is on video. Do you get the difference here? That it's one thing to have rational conversations, rational doubts. You get all these facts. But it's another thing to have your experience of it. When she's with him, all the advice of her friends is drowned out in the experience that she knows in her mind doesn't feel true in the moment. And this is how, may I suggest to you, and C.S. Lewis suggests to you, many, many doubts are born. Not through a rational birth, but through some place in our heart that erupts. Where did Asaph's doubts begin? It wasn't just some thought. But he went out in the big wide world and he started hanging out with wicked people. And he's like, you know what? They're pretty awesome. They're pretty great. Like, look how great their lives are. What happened that, that gave, led Asaph to the doubts? It's like he looked at his own life and his own life. He started suffering things. Things were bad. He had bad experiences. And where do our doubts come from? You know, it might begin, like mine did, with whale hips. But then it usually, may I suggest to you, moves from what we think to what we feel. That maybe life feels unfair. Maybe someone hurt you. And now you don't know if you can trust anyone, not even God. Maybe you went to church and some of those people didn't seem like what you thought they should be like. Maybe God didn't come through for you when you most needed him. Maybe your friends aren't Christians and they're pretty wonderful. Maybe your experiences conflict with what you know is true in your mind. For Asaph, it wasn't that he needed new answers to his rational questions. Although we do need that sometimes. It was that he needed to feel the love and power and awesomeness of God. That he needed to enter the sanctuary of God. What Asaph needed was he needed to hear the word of God. He needed to listen to everyone singing along. He needed to look at other believers and see how God had changed their lives. He needed to smell the sacrifice. He needed to be in the presence of a holy God who transforms his people by his word, by his love, by his grace. Maybe he didn't need rational answers, but he needed to know God loves me right now. Now, isn't this interesting? When God gives us a prayer, a song to sing, a prayer to pray about our doubts, notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't point to our heads. He points to our hearts. Notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't give us 1 Corinthians chapter 15, all the proofs and evidences and eyewitnesses of the resurrection. What does he do? He says, enter my sanctuary. Be with my people. Experience my love. The word heart is mentioned six times in this psalm. And when Asaph experiences worship among God's people, he's changed his heart and mind. Surely you placed them on slippery ground. This is completely inverted. He thought he was slipping, but no, now he realizes they're slipping. You cast them down to ruin. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and arrogant. I was a brute beast before you. He realizes, how dumb was I to think that if you had everything in the world but don't have God, that's anything. How dumb was I to act like what happens right now in this life means something in light of eternity. How stupid was I to forget about my God. Yet I am always with you. 
you hold me by my right hand. See, at the beginning, he thought he was going to fall. But here it says, no, I, I now realize when I'm in your presence that you would never, ever, ever let go of me. That I might think I'm going to fall away from you, but you would never let go of me. Whom I vie in heaven but you and earth has nothing I desire besides you. That, that they might have wealth and all this appearance of blessing. And I might not get all the answers to the questions I want in life, but I get you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, remember verse 2 started out, as for me, I thought I was going to lose my faith. But here he's completely turned around and says, as for me, it is good to be near God. Listen carefully. Doubts are terrible. Doubts are awful. I pray to God that all of you could just believe and not doubt. But the reality is in that a room about this size, this type of crowd, out of all of us there's two or maybe three people in here with what the Apostle Paul would call the gift of faith. The people who always, always just believe. If God said it, I believe it and that's settled. There's a couple people in here, and I love being around you, and it's so encouraging. But the fact of the matter is, is that all the rest of you, me included, a disembodied hand could show up right on the wall. This is a message from God, and all of us would be like, I don't know. I think I saw something like that on TV once. Like, we're wicked. Our hearts don't want to believe. The fact of the matter is, if you follow through the psalm from where he started to where he ended, like it or not, doubts are part of our walk of faith, and doubts actually can bring us to a place that we never were before. God can take your doubts, and he can use those to grow your faith, that when you bring them into this place, that when we come in and worship among God's people, we say, I'm doubting. I don't want to doubt, but I'm doubting. I'm struggling with this. Let's work through this. Let's talk about this. How do you make sense of this? And maybe we don't even have answers. Maybe the answer you're only going to get on this side of heaven is that God loves you, even if we don't understand it, because we can't fathom his mind. Without doubts, Asaph might never have gotten to a place of deep, life-forming faith God can use our doubts, and I personally found this to be true. So have you guys ever, um, have you ever seen this? Go to the Renaissance Fair, and there's the, the, the blacksmith there. And you go in there, and what does he do? He takes this big, like, just flat piece of metal. He sticks it in the fire for a long time until it heats it up. And then what does he do? Beats the tar out of it, and then he sticks it in the fire. Beats the tar out of it, sticks it in the fire. Beats it again. And he, here's the thing. When, he, when he's done, when he's finally finished with his work, he'll cool it off. And that piece of metal will look completely, it'll be completely reshaped. It'll look like something totally different than what he started with. But the parts that he beat the hardest are now going to be the strongest. They're going to be unbreakable. May I suggest to you that this, whale hips, and all the other things that we struggle with are doubts are a tool that God uses. Now, is it like a massive beating? (laughs) Yes. 
But when you take your doubts and you let God form those in your life, it's a beating. And as you bring it together under God's word with God's people, it's going to completely reshape your faith. It will. It won't look like what it first looked like. But the parts that were beaten the most are going to be the strongest. They're going to be unbreakable. Church, I want us to be a church of unbreakable faith in the most important things. And the rest will just get burned off. Interesting enough, study came out last year that I wanted to share with you. University of Southern California. And they learned that actually whale hips do have a function and that my professor was entirely wrong. <laughs> that they're not vesicle structures. And that's not really my point, but I do like the fact that over those years that we see that even all the stuff that caused me doubt really didn't need to. That's not my point, though. The point is, is that until Jesus comes back, there will always be doubts. Some of them more serious than others. There's always going to be things that we can't make sense of. There's always going to be things that we struggle with. There's always going to be things that we have to trust God with because we don't have his mind. He's bigger than us. His thoughts are not our thoughts. If we hope to survive and not fall away, we must not simply fill our heads with facts. We must fill our hearts with beauty and goodness and love and hope. We must not simply read books that answer our questions. We must worship in his presence. Maybe the answer we need is not another book. Maybe it's that we need to enter his presence and know that he loves us and that he's here and that he's worth worshiping even if we don't understand him. 